What's up, guys? I'm your host, Luke Whaley, and you are listening to Believe It or Not. So today is my 363rd episode, and guys, I cannot believe we've made it this far. <clears throat> the next three episodes will be pretty emotional for me, not just because I have a year's worth of episodes, practically over 6,000 hours worth of audio recording, but that the next three episodes, including today's episode, hits a little close to home for me. If you've been listening for a while, you may have heard me mention the Calhoun Creeper. <clears throat> this serial killer had a reign of terror in 1991. He killed at least six teenage girls, two women, and one man. Ever since I started Believe It or Not, I've wanted to have an episode or a few episodes on this case, but because of me and my family being in the center of this case, it's been getting pushed off for some time now. I figured since we're on the corner to that 365 episode mark, then I'd like to end these last three episodes on this case specifically. Some of you may already know about the Calhoun Creeper and how the case kind of played out, but no one has heard my side of the story. One out of six of his victims was my own cousin, May Whaley, but that's not where the Creeper's terror started. His first victim was 13-year-old Amanda Wright. The small town of Calhoun sits in Gordon County, located in the northwestern corner of the state of Georgia. Calhoun is the town home to the Resaca Battlefield, an important battle in the Civil War. Friday, April 5th, 1991 marked the first attack of the Calhoun Creeper. The town would see its first brutal serial kidnapper and serial killer ever. At 7.43 a.m., 13-year-old Amanda Wright left her home to go to school. Amanda was an only child, and both her parents worked all the time, so she was stuck with having to ride her bike to school and back home. Though, it wasn't a terrible thing, because the Wrights only lived 0.8 miles away from Calhoun Middle School. This was only a 5-minute ride by bicycle from her house. That day, Amanda never made it to school. Somewhere within the 0.8 miles between her house and Calhoun Middle, she was taken by the soon-to-be-named Calhoun Creeper. Amanda's mother, Mary Wright, arrived home that evening around 7 p.m. It was typical that Amanda would already be home before Mary was, so she was confused to find out that her daughter wasn't in the home. Anywhere. She searched the entire house, thinking her daughter was just playing games with her, maybe, maybe hide-and-seek, but the house was empty. Mary immediately started calling the parents of Amanda's friends and asked if Amanda was with them, but they said they hadn't seen her and that they'd keep a lookout and let her know if anything was seen. That's when Mary started freaking out and finally called 911. The operator told her what any other operator would have. 
she'll show up, she's just a teenager, just be patient and give it a few hours, but Mary was scared. Amanda was a small, scrawny, 13-year-old girl, and Mary knew she couldn't fight against anyone who tried to hurt her. The next morning came around, and Mary had put up signs around the neighborhood. Signs told of Amanda's description, what she was last wearing, and the description of her bicycle. She called the school and asked if Amanda showed up for class, but they told her she never showed up. It was around noon that the day after Amanda's disappearance when Mary got a call from a local gas station. <clears throat> they told her that Amanda's bike was found behind the building and was beat up pretty bad. The chains and bed the chains had been pulled off. Of the chains had been pulled off of the bike, a handle grip was missing, and the back tire was flat. Mary and her husband, Chris, rushed to the gas station to see the bike and see if it was Amanda's for sure, and upon arrival, the owner of the gas station, Jerry, led Chris and Mary to the back where the bike still sat in the same position that Jerry left it when he found it. Finally, the cops came out and started an investigation. One of the first things that stood out was the whereabouts of Amanda's bike. The gas station it was found at wasn't in the route that Amanda would take to get to Calhoun Middle. The gas station was the opposite way from the school. Mary knew something was off and had known since the night before. She knew Amanda would never just leave and run off, and it's not like she didn't know her way to the school. She knew her way around Calhoun, and Mary didn't believe that she just up and ran which is what Detective Moore kept suggesting. No new clues pointed to Amanda's whereabouts until Sunday, April 7th, when the Calhoun City Police Department received a call. <clears throat> when the call was answered, the woman on the other side of the phone told the operator that she had just found a body. She was at Calhoun City Park and found the girl's body in a creek. The operator immediately sent the Calhoun City Police Department to the park. When Calhoun City Police Department arrived, they began their investigation. Mary and Chris arrived at the park within minutes of the department calling them. Mary identified the body as Amanda's, and then the body was taken to the morgue. <clears throat> According to the woman's statement, she lost control of her dog and let go of the leash. The dog ran into the creek just a few yards away from Amanda's body, and that's when the woman saw her body and called 911. Her body was found with three stab wounds in the chest, and when the forensics came back, she was killed sometime early morning on April 7th. The next day around noon, Barbara Klein walked into the police department. Barbara lives on the same street as the Wrights, and when she sees Detective Moore, she tells him that she saw a man in a Renault space. She says the van looked like it had been beaten up, as if it had recently been in a wreck. The man in the Renault space pulled over on the side of the road as Amanda was riding her bike. Amanda stopped her bike and turned to face the man in the van. Barbara, Barbara claims she was watching out of the front window as Amanda jumped back on her bike and rode down the side of the road. The man in the Renault then drove off the opposite way. <clears throat> but what Barbara tells Detective Moore next sparks his interest. Barbara tells that she knows exactly who drives the Renault space. The man, Henry Wells, lives on 
the man, Henry Wells, lives a few blocks down from Barbara and has always given Barbara said bad vibes. She claims that he's seen Henry stop. She claims that she's seen Henry stop on the side of the road and talk to young girls as they walk by. Barbara gives Detective Moore Henry's address, and he immediately sends a few officers out to bring in Henry. When Officer Lionel and two other officers arrive at Henry's house, they knock on the door a few times. Henry comes to the door within a few seconds. He acts nice and calm at first, claiming he had no idea what Officer Lionel was talking about. But Lionel knew this was the man, because his Renault space was sitting in in the driveway, and just like Barbara had said, there was a massive dent in the driver's side passenger door. The officer brings Henry into the precinct, where Detective Austin Moore interrogates him. Barbara's statement scared Henry at first, but he explains that he was offering Amanda a ride to school. Amanda told him no and left. Henry then left for work, which was verified by Henry's boss. Austin let Henry go even though the man gave him a sickening feeling. Something felt off, but he wasn't sure if he was Amanda's killer. The Calhoun City Police Department didn't get any didn't get any other leads on the murder of Amanda Wright until April 10th when the note was found after three 13-year-old girls went missing from the Whaley home. For the Whaley family Tuesday, April 8th, 1991 was just a regular day in Calhoun, Georgia. Keith was my uncle, the father of May. He was my dad's younger brother, but just by two years. Keith married Heather in 74 and had three kids. Tyler was born in 75, May in 78, and Daisy in 82. My mother had died in 87, leaving my my father, Jim, to raise me and my younger sister, Jamie. We had all gotten together for May's 13th birthday on the evening of Monday the 8th. She didn't get, any, she didn't get a big birthday party with all of her friends that year, but Keith promised her a nice big dinner with the whole family. I remember that night like it was yesterday. It was the night before everything changed, before the family split apart. Everybody seemed normal that night, and nothing seemed out of the ordinary or off. Me, my father, and Jamie arrived at Keith's house around 5 p.m. We didn't eat until 6 when dinner was finally ready. All the food sat in the center of the dining room table. It was a roasted chicken, corn, green beans, and potato salad for the sides. After dinner, we played a few card games and a few board games and talked until later that night around 9. My side of the Whaley family went our separate ways. It was soon after we left when Rachel Edwards and Lily Hatfield arrived at May's house. They played a few board games before May had the idea of talking to Tyler and convincing him to take them to the local ice cream shop down the road. After begging her brother, May and her two friends finally convinced him to take them. They they then began their trip on bikes to the ice cream shop. The ride to the ice cream shop by bike was about 20 minutes. They arrived close to 9.45. The four walked inside, ordered their ice cream, and by the time they came back, 
By the time they came back outside, Brandon Edwards, a few friends of ours, and I stood outside by Brandon's truck. Now, when I left Keith's house, I went home and came back out to meet Brandon and our friends at the ice cream place. Brandon, Tyler, and I used to be good friends until high school rolled around. Being cousins, Tyler and I still hung out, but when Brandon was around, I didn't talk to him. I mainly tried to stay away so Brandon wouldn't get mad. Brandon, on the other hand, wouldn't leave Tyler alone. You could say Brandon was Tyler's high school bully. Well, okay, <laughs> scratch that. He definitely was Tyler's high school bully. I never really did anything about Brandon bullying Tyler, which to this day, it still gets to me and I regret it. It wasn't until this night when I stood up to Brandon and finally defended my own cousin. Once Tyler and the girls walked outside, it kind of surprised me because they were the last people I expected to see at the shop that night. My friends and I had arrived after Tyler, so I never saw him and the girls walk inside. Brandon approached Tyler, who tried to ignore him, but Brandon wasn't one to Brandon wasn't one to walk off when he was trying to talk to someone. He was just stubborn like that, you could say. Brandon ran up to him and shoved him to the ground, making Tyler drop his ice cream cone. By now, the girls stepped away and started yelling at Brandon to stop, but of course, he didn't. Tyler stood up, but just as he did, Brandon walked up to him and punched him in the face. <clears throat> Tyler backed up a few steps, but again, Brandon punched him. This time, he punched him more than he usually did. All the meanwhile, Brandon was yelling at him, calling him ugly names and cussing at him. This was normal, but the continuous punching wasn't. See, they had gotten in quite some, quite a few fights before, but typically, Brandon didn't punch more than twice. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is when I finally stood up to Brandon. I couldn't stand to watch him beat up my cousin, so I stood from the tailgate of Brandon's truck and ran over to Brandon. I grabbed his arm, pulled him, pulled him backwards, and he turned around and punched me. Tyler gained his balance, took his stance, and punched Brandon, but he easily dodged dodged the punch. He just reared his fist back and punched Tyler in the face. Tyler fell over onto the asphalt below and blacked out. I thought he was going to wake up and stand, but he just continued to lay there. Kept thinking to myself, was he dead? I could have stopped Brandon, but I didn't. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry. The girls stood a few feet away crying, but that's when I saw the ice cream shop worker standing in the doorway of the building. She held a phone to her ear and was talking. I couldn't hear anything she was saying, but I knew she had called 911. Was Brandon going to go to jail? I kept asking myself. By the time the cops got there, Brandon was gone. He had jumped in his truck and just... He had jumped in his truck just as he heard the sirens. He pulled out of the small parking lot and disappeared down the road somewhere. I second-guessed myself going after Brandon, but I didn't want to leave Tyler's side. After all, this was my cousin, and I felt like if I had ran away, even if it was to chase Brandon, somebody would find a way to blame me for what happened. The paramedics arrived seconds after the cops did. Cops pulled me away from Tyler's body, and luckily he was alive. He was unconscious, thank God. I had no idea what I would have done if he wasn't alive. To this day, I've always blamed myself for what happened. I should have stepped in sooner. 
The cops questioned me and I told them exactly what happened. We were hanging out when Tyler, his sister, and her friends got ice cream. They walked out and Brandon approached Tyler. The fight broke out and I tried to intervene, but I couldn't stop Brandon from doing anything. I explained to them that he's had a rough past. His parents were divorced. Typical teenage boy. They understood what I was saying and the cops left and went back to the station. They didn't try and look for Brandon or anything, they just left. I got a hold of May's parents from the shop's landline and offered them that I would take the three girls home. They had Daisy with them and were already on the way to the hospital to see Tyler. It was a quarter after ten when the girls and I arrived at May's house. I dropped the I dropped the third I dropped the 13-year-old girls off at the house and left. I had no idea that that was going to be the last time I'd see the three girls. Ever. Keith and Heather arrived at their home close to 12.20 a.m. Heather was the first one in the house, and as soon as she stepped foot out of the car and into the garage, she called for her daughter. May, she shouted, but May didn't call back. Daisy got out of the car next and made her way into the house. Go straight to bed, Heather shouted at Daisy as the nine-year-old ran through the door and into the kitchen. Heather went to the back seat and helped Keith get Tyler out of the car. That's when the scream pierced through Heather's ears. Heather, David, and Tyler exchanged a few looks, then Daisy appeared back in the doorway. She was covered in blood. Heather rushed to her daughter and stopped a few feet in front of her. She stared at her daughter in shock. She had no idea what the blood was from or how she got covered in it so quickly. What happened? Heather asked. Daisy cried and whimpered as she tried to explain. Th th there's blood everywhere. Heather just thought she was talking about her clothes, not whatever was inside the living room, the hallway, the bathroom, and May's bedroom. Heather told Daisy to stay here, and she walks into the kitchen. As she rounds the corner from the kitchen and looks into the living room, she sees the blood all over the floor. A smear mark is in the entryway from the living room and into the kitchen. Daisy explains later that when she was walking into the kitchen, she was skipping. When she rounded the corner, her foot slipped on the blood, and she landed stomach down in the blood-soaked carpet. Heather screams when she sees the blood, and Keith runs into the home to join her. He sees what Heather sees, and is the first to call out for their daughter. May, he shouted. Heather calls for May a few times, then they both remember that May wasn't the only one in the home. Lily, Rachel, Heather shouts. Keith and Heather slowly made their way through the living room and looked toward the TV. The entire living room was trashed, almost as if someone had broke in. The back door that led onto the back porch was hanging wide open, swaying back and forth with the wind, and a smeared track of blood flowed from May's bedroom door, the bathroom door, down the hall, through the living room, then out the back door that was currently open. Heather didn't want to believe it, but she says that she had a feeling nobody else was in the home. The two made their way through the home into the bathroom that came before May's bedroom. Keith pushed the cracked door open and revealed a blood-covered toilet. 
the blood trail went from the toilet to the door and connected to the other trail in the hall. They didn't call out their names anymore. They just followed the blood trail in the opposite direction it was going. Heather remembers reaching out to push May's bedroom door open before Keith grabbed her hand and pulled her aside. He told her to stay in the hall while he walked in. He didn't want her seeing what he was about to see. As soon as the door opened, he saw the mattress lying on the floor instead of on the bed frame. Blood covered the mattress and all the sheets on it. One of the two windows in her room was shattered, and a bloody rock lied on the floor in front of the window. There weren't any dead bodies, though. May, May's, Lily's, Rachel's, none of them. Just a mixture of the girl's blood. Keith says he jumped when he heard Heather shout his name. He could hear he could hear the trembling in her voice as she shouted, so he quickly made his way back down the hall and into the kitchen. He said that when he was running through the house, it didn't feel as if he was running. It all happened in slow motion. All he could think about were the hundreds of bad possibilities that could have happened to the girls. He thought that Heather found a body, or bodies. Once he reached the kitchen, Heather and Heather was leaning against the counter, staring at a piece of paper. Keith looked at the paper and read what it said. They call me C.C. The Calhoun Creeper. Alright guys, thank you everyone for listening today, and I hope you all have a great and wonderful day. See you next week when we follow up on part two of three of The Calhoun Creeper.